Our country doesn't have a theory of the case about what kinds of human rights abuses an ally would perpetrate before they stop being our ally. There's just not a well-articulated theory there. To say, oh, we're going to do something, but actually we're not really, it's just a campaign trail thing. If there is an even more egregious or widespread human rights abuse that comes up, why would Saudi Arabia believe our word that we're going to retaliate? Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Rakesh Lott. Well, Corey, big announcement today, huh? Yeah, huge announcement. I am starting a new podcast here at Lost Debate that's all about TikTok and the most interesting creators on there. It's called Stitch This with Corey Bradford. If you're familiar with TikTok, stitching this is when you put two videos together. And so I interviewed a ton of really cool creators on the platform. The first one is, uh, the first episode is actually coming out tomorrow, June 8th, and the first interview is going to be with attorney ryan who is a labor lawyer who's got like a million followers on tiktok i'm really excited about it and um i can't wait for people to dive in there and listen to some of the cool conversations we had well it's an awesome show and listeners i can't recommend it enough so you know go check it out uh search stitch this wherever you get your podcasts and we'll be dropping one episode each week for the next few weeks Corey, well, with that, what's on the show today? On today's show, we'll tour the campus of a Facebook-funded metaversity, proving you can make anything less appealing by putting meta at the front. Then we'll talk about some real classrooms and how many students should be in them. We'll discuss some new and serious charges from the January 6th storming of the Capitol. And the state of New York is trying to limit emissions from mining, which felt pretty overdue to me until I realized they meant crypto mining. President Biden appears to be cozying up to Saudi Arabia after promising to make them a pariah state. And finally, we'll talk about rescue rats, which sounds like a new animated Disney series, but may in fact save you from from being trapped after an earthquake one day. But first things first, we tried our best to avoid this first story and we had a pretty good streak going. But now that the dust is settling, it's time for us to talk about the double-edged defamation trial that captured a nation, bringing out the worst in two actors and a celebrity-obsessed American public. So let's talk about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Because once you get past the tabloidy aspects of this case, there's a lot going on here. Ravi, walk us through defamation law and how it applied here. Yeah, and as background, you know, the one time we've mentioned this whole story on our show was in the context of this op-ed from 2018 that had Amber Heard's name on it. And as we we described in that segment, this was an op-ed that was written in part in conjunction with the ACLU, which we'll come back to. And in this op-ed, Amber Heard, or at least under her name, she claims she was uh, a public figure representing domestic abuse and there's a whole bunch of details about this op-ed that we'll go through including a title that i think goes a step further and what happened here was that johnny depp sued her for defamation in american courts and then she countersued uh, alleging that she was defamed by johnny depp's lawyer and this trial has been going on uh, for a while now there were six weeks of testimony and evidence here and I, you know, we've now come out the other side of this where Johnny Depp won, you know, there, there was a higher verdict, but it was brought down to about $10 million. Amber Heard won her countersuit for about $2 million. So she, in the end, came out uh, on the losing end of this case. And I think a lot of people are speculating about what this means for our society. And I think what we want to do is start with just the defamation issues here. And we're going to go through the rest of these issues. And so I'll just briefly describe what the legal standard here is because i think it's really confusing i think people are so used to watching law and order that they expect this to be a question of 
beyond a reasonable doubt, right? But you have to remember that this is a civil case. In a criminal case, you have to prove your facts beyond a reasonable doubt. But in a civil case, you just have to convince your jury that you're 1% more likely to be right uh, than not right. And in the case of American law, which is different than a lot of places around the world, in order to prove defamation, you have to show that the person, that there's a defamatory implication of an op-ed and that was designed and intended actual malice. And there was this case from 1964, which is kind of a defining First Amendment case in the United States called the New York Times versus Sullivan. That's basically clarifies what that means. And it means that you have to act with knowledge that your statement was false or with reckless disregard of whether it was false or not. So either knowledge that it was false or reckless disregard being the key language here. And this entire trial is about whether Amber Heard acted in such a way, and obviously Johnny Depp on, on, on the countersuit. And the most of the six weeks of testimony was based on what they call a credibility assessment of the jury. Basically saying, is Amber Heard a credible person? Because they have to judge whether she's credible or not to decide whether her claims were credible. And so that's so much about what this trial is about. Yeah, and interestingly enough, so much of that credibility test brought up just this just ugly dirt from their relationship. Every single sordid detail was brought out in the public in order to establish who was more credible. And I think that's what's just so disturbing about this, because all of this surrounds around this Washington Post op-ed and whether or not she was, you know, intentionally defaming Depp. But in the in the midst of all that, all of these terrible things from their closets got brought out. And, and it just seems like Americans couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, I had the experience of and we talk about this in the uh, in the office all the time. I, I was getting nonstop videos sent to my Instagram from this trial, even though I never, up until researching this story for this segment, put the audio on or clicked on any one of these things. But just as it relates to the defamation piece of this, I think there are so many, you know, the, the pandemic experts who became the Ukraine experts are now the legal experts now. And a lot of people are saying this is going to be a watershed moment in American law, et cetera. I'm not convinced. First of all, this is this was a finding of fact. So this wasn't mm-hmm. a change in the law. This was a question of the juries were, were asked to, to answer a specific question of fact. So that's one thing. The second thing is I think this case came down to two decisions by this judge. Number one was the decision to allow cameras in the courtroom, which is in and of itself was an important decision. But then the combination of that decision and the decision to not sequester the jury to me were critical to this case Mm -hmm. because what you had were a highly publicized trial, which unprecedented level of social media activity, largely on behalf of Johnny Depp, with a jury that was going home and communicating with their loved ones or their family members. There's no way they weren't being bombarded by the same stuff that we were. So to me, whether you you think Johnny Depp deserved, you know, whether the claims against him were correct or not, to me, I think that this was not a fair trial. I think that the the judge made some critical errors here in, in not creating an impartial situation. And I think that largely explains what happened here. I agree with the analysis that I don't think this is as much of a watershed moment as people on kind of either side of the case are saying. I think there's a lot of people more on the right or more on the depth side that are saying this is the end of Me Too and it's the end of of women being able to accuse men with no recourse. And then there's people that are more uh, sympathetic to Amber Heard who were saying that women are not going to come up with domestic abuse claims in the future because of fears of counter lawsuits. But I would say for me, I don't really see either of them as satisfying explanations. I think they're overly simplistic. I think what happened here is just a challenge to the idea that there's always a victim and a perpetrator and no in between. This Mm. was a 
way more complicated case. I think that's what we saw here. And I think I agree with you, the fact that her credibility was what was at stake here. Unfortunately for her, she had various moments where it was blatantly obvious that she lied to the jury. It's not to say that she wasn't abused. I think they both clearly abused each other and that's just not even a question. But I think, you know, this just comes down to due process is still alive. The system is still working. She had her day in court. And, you know, I, I think it's a really ugly spectacle to watch, but I think that these stories are not just always completely cut and dry. And that's what happened. Yeah. In January of 2020, some phone recordings were released in which Amber Heard admitted that she hit Johnny Depp. And I believe that this kind of pinpoints the beginning of a time period where people kind of shifted and said, oh, she admitted to to, to hitting Johnny Depp. So she's the abuser. She's the one abusing him. And we've never really seen a very public case of domestic violence against a man, especially a very famous man. I mean, Johnny Depp might be one of the most famous actors of the last 30 years. Uh, We've never really seen something like that on this level. I know back in the day, Liza Minnelli uh, had an ex-husband who accused her of abuse and the lawsuit got tossed out of court. So, you know, no one ever took that serious. And I think this was the first case of that. I think that had a lot to do with the support for Johnny Depp. But I also do believe that there was a trove of toxic people out there, toxic guys, whether you want to call them incels, women haters, whatever term you want to refer to them as, they took this and ran with it as a as an example of women can abuse too. And I do believe that there was a lot of toxic behavior going on in that regard that really just diluted the waters here. Yeah, I think anyone who comes down cleanly siding with someone in this situation, like you weren't there and it, this is way more complex than we can see. But I think I, Megyn Kelly did some good analysis of instances where it was just blatantly obvious that she was lying to the jury Mm -hmm. and that just becomes a problem in a defamation suit and in a civil suit like you said like she said that she blamed the infamous poop in the bed on a four pound teacup yorkie that's pretty hard to pass off um she said that pledging to donate money was the same as donating money even though she had said that she publicly had prior said that she donated all her divorce settlement and that didn't happen. Um, She tried to say that the op-ed was not about Depp and then accidentally admitted it on the stand multiple times. As did the ACLU. Yeah. There was a leaked video that TMZ got that they immediately published, which they only could do with copyright from the owner that she filmed of him, like like basically destroying a kitchen cabinet or something like Mm -hmm. that. Like very bad look for Depp, certainly. Um, And it was also cut off right before she kind of like tauntingly laughed at him. So both of them looked terrible. She said she didn't share that. She also said that when TMZ reporters were told where to photo, like how to photograph her with her bruises before she went to file an abuse claim against Depp, that it wasn't her that suggested that. And so there were just a lot of instances where it was like, Yes, I 100% believe that she was the victim of abuse in many instances based on this testimony. But I also don't believe that she's a clearly credible witness. And that's just legally what it comes down to here. Yeah, there was a, the, there was of all the testimony that I read about, and I didn't watch the whole trial, obviously, but the couple's marriage counselor, Laurel Anderson, testified to uh, what she believed was, quote, mutual abuse in the relationship. And I think that's that gets to a little bit about this public spectacle is like what I one of the reasons why we've resisted spending too much time on this is that this idea that you pick a side in a situation like this, where at least like I wasn't there, right? But there seems to be a bunch of people in both of their lives who 
claimed to, to have witnessed something going one way and something going the other way that like the idea that our society is going to cheer on one side or the other of this incredibly deranged relationship and now that that pathology has seeped into our internet and like you know i I'm, i can't get away from videos about this and people mocking you know her on the stand celebrating him and all that and like i believe in due process even though i think that this trial had some screwy like this judge made some screwy decisions in the end i believe anybody deserves due process i don't quote unquote have a side on this i just think it says more about us as a society than anything else well you were you were i mean i was alive too for it but you were very much aware when the oj trial yeah happened um i mean do you see similarities and how people sensationalize that versus this yeah i think there are two big similarities one is the fact that uh, so much of a trial is decided before it starts. And I think, like I said, I think there were just in the OJ trial is a decision to hold it in downtown Los Angeles versus in Brentwood, which uh, which had a huge effect on the jury pool and how sympathetic they would be to OJ Simpson. And then uh, and then I think the second thing is is our just insatiable, never ending appetite for consuming legal cases involving tragedy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think in that case, it was more cut and dry, in my opinion, like there was a clear victim uh, and there was a clear perpetrator as I see it. And that was a, there wasn't a question of like, did Nicole Brown Simpson deserve it or something like that? But yeah, you know. it, to your first point there, I mean, uh, Heard had tried to get this trial moved from Virginia to California because maybe she thought that the jury pool there would be more uh, sympathetic to her. So that there, there are a lot of similarities there for sure. I think it was also her lawyer that likened um, the spectacle of it to like the Coliseum. And I think that's pretty accurate. It's just like an age old human instinct to, kind of not be able to look away from roadkill essentially it's uh i mean it's not our proudest moment but i don't think it's particularly unique yeah and, and i think like one thing i want to clarify is is i said that i don't think the law changes here i do think the culture is changing and i think that's really clear around this case is that it does feel different than 2018 you know, in 2018, as we've described, we, we've covered things like the shitty media men list and things like that. Uh, there definitely was a certain societal conversation and piling on effect back then that I think is complicated, right? Like I believe, and I think we've talked about this to some extent, that there was a lot of good done in the name of the Me Too movement. You know, the people like Weinstein and et cetera were, you know, rightfully brought to justice. I think what we're seeing now is a, a society that I think has has kind of shifted in a certain way. And this isn't just men cheering on Johnny Depp, which I find really fascinating about this phenomenon around this trial. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of craziness and hopefully we can just move on and get to some more positive stories in our, in our news cycle. Have you ever wanted to go to college on Facebook? No, literally never. Can't imagine anyone would. But if you change your mind, you can always pull on a VR headset and head to Metaversity. Ricky, does that sound like how you'd like to finish up your degree? I'd prefer not to, but honestly, it'd probably be better than the Zoom situation that they were pay like charging us full tuition for during the pandemic. Oh, but wow. um, essentially what's happening is 10 colleges are using money and, and like basically donated VR sets from Facebook to create like an immersive VR learning world and to have all their classrooms scanned so that it can feel as though you're actually there in a lecture hall. They're um, figuring out how to like have 3D objects involved so you can do like science experiments or walk around historical settings, which is kind of interesting. Um, and they're going to be required to pay a licensing fee going forward to Facebook, but essentially like Facebook is funding them just starting it. Um, and I think, you know, as much as I don't like this in a dystopian sense and it 
our producer likened it to Wii Sports the way that it looks, and I think that's pretty accurate. Um, this is expected to be a nearly $700 billion industry by 2030. So, I mean, I think it's kind of where things are going, but I hope that it's it's an alternative for people who who need remote learning or need an exception and not the norm. I just don't want to live my life in the metaverse. That's that's my stance. Yeah, I know I've previously been on record, I think as more pro metaverse than anybody in my life. And I, and I continue to think that this stuff is inevitable. Like we adopt the best technology possible to communicate. That's how we've always been. And I think this is just the next great technology and people are going to use it if it gets better. And I think we're, we're getting to a point now and people can argue, are we five years away? Are we 10 years away, et cetera. But I think for most young people, we're definitely gonna live out this transition. And now the transition could look wildly different depending on, on where we're going here. And I think there are certainly bad things about it. Like we've talked about, it's kind of like social media. There was a lot of bad that came with social media, but also a lot of good, a lot of accessibility that came. I tend to think of somebody who's like in Bangladesh who would love to go to school next to somebody who's in America or somebody who deals with a physical disability or just doesn't like the way they look or wants to be something else. And to me, that is, empowering in a certain kind of way. There's obviously all kinds of mm. issues with this. Like we could be like the Wally type of characters where we're just sitting in chairs all day yeah. and not going out and exercising and all that. And you could think of a million different problems with this. But I think if it's inevitable, my mind immediately shifts to how do we make it as good as we possibly can. I don't know. I think I was with you for the first half of theoretical examples. I don't really like the idea of like people who are insecure can just hide behind a mask and live in the metaverse. Like that <laughs> seems like a really unhealthy life situation in but, my opinion but, but if you can't help the way you look like like, like let's say like you i just, just want i don't look think different, i don't know? like the idea of humans hiding in some digital world i think it's a tool mm. i don't think it's like a refuge i think that's where i get concerned about where this could go societally in a broader sense if it becomes like a destination and not a utility yeah i agree with ricky there's this rejection of reality that i think inherently comes with this type of technology i just wish like you could make like remember in star wars where they had the holograph and it was the actual you know person and it was you know just the actual person in this setting that mm -hmm. would be really cool but but i do yeah. believe that there's a certain level of dissociation with that that can really screw with someone psychologically i don't know speaking. i just see this being very black mirror potentially well i, I don't know like, the, the, I think the seminal text on this is Ready Player One, right? The fictional book, which also has a decent movie attached to it. And I think it, it actually presents both potential, like the, both the upside of it, where they're, they're some of the main characters who, you know, dramatically change their appearance or in some cases just tweak it or enhance it. And then there are also situations of the, you know, the concentration of power, who controls this technology, et cetera. And that's like a central theme of that book. But to me, it's like, it's not a question of if, it's just how at this yeah. point. And I and mm -hmm. I do think I'm way more sympathetic to people who want to use this as a way to, you know, get beyond the physical boundaries that they were given, you know, whether they live in the wrong place or the place that they don't want to be in, or they look a certain way and they want to look a different way. There will be a whole kind of politics that will be open up to this, obviously, like, I think that that's going to be fascinating. And, you know, somebody's going to write the great book of metaverse politics. Well, let's talk about actual classrooms now. New York state lawmakers passed legislation last week that requires New York City public schools to reduce their class sizes. While union leaders are celebrating the news, city officials are concerned about how the cost will affect other education programs. Robbie, you're the former educator here. How does reducing class size affect students? Well, I think the research here is very mixed. And I think let's talk about what New York is proposing so we can at least put a number to it, right? So New York wants to change kindergarten 
classroom sizes from currently a cap of 25 students to a cap of 20 students. And in high school, they want to change the current cap of 34 students to 25 students. So those are the numbers we're dealing with, somewhere between a 5 to 10-ish uh, change in class size. And interestingly, with a bigger change in the high school levels, which we'll come back to, uh, or at least a bigger reduction. And so that's notable. People think this will cost about a billion dollars a year to implement. And this comes uh, at a time when it, you know we don't know the fiscal future of New York City. And David Banks, the New York uh, City Schools Chancellor, called this a multi-billion dollar unfunded mandate. And he says it's going to force leaders to shift resources away from programs such as dyslexia screening, school nurses, summer programming. You know, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, made similar comments. And then in contrast, the unions who are very supportive of this uh, have been urging the city to use federal and state pandemic aid for this, which is temporary, obviously. So that that's puzzling to me. This is a huge expenditure. So I would want to know where this money's coming from. And this comes in a state that is one of the highest in the country. It's second only to D.C. in terms of per pupil uh, expenditures, or sorry, in terms of teacher pay. And in the most recent year that the data is available, we spend more than any other state per student and nearly twice the national average in New York State. And that's even more in New York City. So this is a place that's spending a lot of money already. So I think the big question we got to ask ourselves is not only is it effective to decrease class sizes, which we'll get to the data, but also is it more effective than the alternative uses of these funds? My read on the data is that it's just at best inconclusive. And I also think like when you look nationally, it's, I feel like some people imagine that there are places where there are absolutely enormous classrooms versus the span, the largest average is in Utah of 26, the lowest average is Maine of 17. It's not an enormous disparity. This is a relatively narrow situation, but then again, the expenditures of closing that gap can be huge. So what's your read on whether or not that's actually effective or necessary? Yeah, well, to put some numbers to this, in 1970 in this country, we had around 22 stu students per class. That went down to about 15 in 2008 and has come up slightly to around 16 now and, and where you know the most recent available data we have. So just thinking about the numbers, that is, you know, we're already seeing a trend in this direction. And that's because a lot of states have already pushed for this. At least 24 states have some measures on the books to try to reduce class sizes. So we're starting to get more and more data on this. And we'll link in the show notes to a report by Brookings where they basically summarized all the studies. And we're talking 100 plus studies on this. And they essentially come down to a couple of key, I wouldn't even say facts, but suggestions from the overall data. Number one is that in order to have a big effect, you probably need to dramatically decrease class size. So we're talking about seven to 10 students per class and that the effects are going to be most pronounced in the earliest grades. So if you compare that to what New York is doing, they're, they're changing the cap by five students in the earliest grades. That probably isn't going to do it according to the research, but the research goes further saying it's not just a question of whether this is effective or not but whether it's the most effective use of the funds that mm -hmm. you could be spending. And they, along with the report from the Education Commission of the States, which came out in 2009, and almost anywhere else you look where there's a meta study or a summary of the research, everybody says the same thing. This is not only a questionable use of resources, but potentially the worst use of resources compared to any other available alternative, including high-powered tutoring, which is probably one of the best uses of resources mm -hmm. on this. Yeah, I think that um, it seems like the data is more conclusive on direct instruction and tutoring being just more cost-effective. And I also would imagine that against the backdrop of a teacher shortage, this is probably the last thing we should be doing. I think that we should have 
hire quality teachers and not hire quantity teachers and be able to pay them more. And I, I feel like something like this will achieve the exact opposite. Yeah, and there was this uh, analysis from Professor Michael Gilrain from NYU where he looked at this and basically said, what winds up happening, is, and this is something that happened in California in the 90s when they tried to reduce class sizes, is what happens is you're reducing class sizes and you're, you're filling those new roles with inexperienced, sometimes unlicensed teachers, and that's decreasing the quality of overall instruction. And so what happened in California was that the data wasn't good because you were, mm -hmm. you were putting not great teachers in front of kids. And so Bill Gates had an idea on this, which I tend to agree with, which is instead of like talking about class sizes as a whole, let's say who, let's take a look at the best teachers. This is something Korea does really well. Take the best teachers and actually pay them more to take on more students. And he found in a survey that the Gates Foundation did that 83% of teachers said they would be happy to teach more students for more pay. So actually it should be the opposite. We should be taking the really good teachers, increasing their class sizes, and then remember what I said about the data about high power tutoring, uh, use additional staff to create really, really small groups of tutoring clusters that happen throughout the day so that a kid, it's not about a question of class size all day, but more like these moments when you could take two, four, five kids at a time two to them for two hours a day, and then do it again for another four or five students for two hours a day. And then you could stack those on top of each other. The data is much better on that being an effective intervention than just a class size all day. I agree with you on that, but it really is about the quality of the teacher. Uh, because anecdotally speaking, I can remember back when I was in high school, the bigger classes tended to not be as good. Like I tended to learn less in them because there were so many distractions and so much going on. And it really depended on whether or not a teacher was able to control right. that class mm -hmm. size. So so what you're talking about is not just teachers who are good at educating, but teachers who are good at controlling students and right. good at controlling classrooms, which I'm, which I'm sure is something you had to encounter a lot running charter schools. Yeah, we've experimented. In my schools, we would experiment with certain things. Like sometimes the person who explains the concept really well is not the same person who's really good at classroom management. Yeah. And so sometimes we had this one big classroom in my school that I think would fit like 50 students and we experimented with one teacher who was really good at explaining writing concepts teaching while another student while another teacher would kind of just circulate around you know motivate kids take the right kid to the back of the room and talk to them and coach them through something and then an even better example of that would be like we were able to have a partnership with Vanderbilt where they would send some you know student teachers to us and then we would put them in circular tables in the back of that very same room so I mean, you're adding your third teacher there for 25 kids or for 50 kids and then they're pulling kids in small groups to tutor them. And, you know, you can imagine a world where some of the more advanced kids are on Khan Academy in the back of the classroom because they maybe have advanced beyond the skills in that class. So you can start to think about differentiate, differentiation in that way. To me, that starts to get at solving for the right thing, right? It's not just about the size of the class, but it's about the student experience. Well, that's interesting stuff. And that sounds like a really good idea. We'll, we'll see what ends up happening here in New York with uh, this reduction in class size. Five members of the far-right group, the Proud Boys, were charged with seditious conspiracy on Monday for their role in the January 6th riots. The group had previously been charged with conspiring to obstruct an election, but the new sedition charges carry a heavier legal weight as well as political undertones. Ravi, what was your take when you first heard about these new charges? I think that this is just one step in the direction of some kind of accountability on January 6th. You know, this is not the first time they were charged, so they were charged with other 
crimes uh, the Proud Boys were, or these members were. Uh, and you know, this is an interesting charge because seditious conspiracy means that you have to prove that at least two people agreed to use force to overthrow the government, uh, either the government authority or to delay the execution of a US law. You can imagine this is a little bit of both of those two things. Mm -hmm. And they join members of the Oath Keepers who are already charged with this crime. And this comes at a time when the January 6th committee is set to begin their uh, public hearings, and those hearings are going to play out until September. So this is, I think, an increase in sort of, I would say, January 6th-related public activity that we're seeing right now. Do you believe that the January 6th, the people involved, especially people like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, do you believe that they were truly a threat to, to our democracy? Yeah, so I don't know, like, I, I don't know the exact evidence that the government's basing it off of. I know my instinct, which is like, when I watched January 6th and then I saw the effort, as we've talked about after that, to try to spin a different narrative about what was going on, including the president's complicity in it and other members of Congress who, you know, some members of Congress who were alarmed over it and made statements about the fact that they believed it was a threat to democracy and then have pivoted since then. All of that to me makes me very urgent about this and very sympathetic to efforts to bring people to justice, but I am a believer in due process. So I would want the courts to take these charges seriously and 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 look at them and this doesn't need to be a witch hunt. It could be just a sober reading of the facts in the law to say whether these people violated this particular law or not. One of the interesting revelations that came out of these um, new charges was that um, the leader's texts compared January 6th to the Winter Palace, which is the Russian emperor's home that was stormed in 1917. And so I think there's not really a lot of question about whether that sentiment was circul circulating and i think the question is just how formidable was this planning and how intense was it but certainly the records are suggestive of the fact that you know there was seditious ideology at least yeah there's been a troubling rebranding around january 6th so i think we need to really be careful and tread lightly when it comes to to this subject agreed Pariah no more. President Biden is now learning a lesson that many of his predecessors in the White House had to learn firsthand as well. Cutting ties with Saudi Arabia is easier said than done. Reports of a planned trip to the Gulf next month, since downplayed by Biden, suggest a sharp 180 from the tough talk of the campaign trail to the real world of devil you know foreign policy. Robbie, what do we make of this reversal that it seems the Biden administration has had on Saudi Arabia? I think you can believe two things simultaneously. You could think that Saudi Arabia is a country with a horrendous human rights record and, you know, you could be appalled by the leverage that they have over the United States and still think Biden made a huge mistake in the campaign by saying that he was going to, you know, pull back or cool relations with Saudi Arabia. Why? Because he didn't have a plan to see that through. <laughs> like, this is a country we have deep economic, diplomatic, military ties with, business ties with, and you can hate all of those things. But if you're going to say that we're going to cool relations, you need to actually back that up. And I think mm -hmm. he just doesn't look really credible here. They, they made an about face almost immediately on this. And I think even if it wasn't for, even if the oil markets weren't what they are, I still think the U.S. would have and probably did start to backtrack this stuff pretty immediately. Yeah. And on the campaign trail, he said, um, there's very little social redeeming value of the in the present government in Saudi Arabia and called them a pariah state, which would essentially require that we cut off all economic, military, diplomatic, cultural, social ties entirely. 
And I think that's especially irresponsible given his time in the White House. Like this is something that he knows is far more complicated than any of us would like it to be, but that's just the reality. And within less than six weeks of being in the office, the State Department flipped and said, our our relationship with Saudi Arabia is important. And especially now that gas is going out of control and, and Saudi Arabia has the highest short-term spare oil by a factor of two of any other nation in the world. Of course, we're going to backtrack and tread lightly, but I think it was tapping into some of the sentiment of being anti-Trump means you're anti-Saudi because there was this feeling that Trump was so cozy with him or with them um, as a country. But ultimately, like this is just that was not the pragmatic way to go. And he's been caught. Yeah, you make a great point, Ricky, about the fact that Joe Biden was vice president for eight years. He should have known better than to make these kinds of statements. If he had been some freshman, young, never been involved in this kind of thing before, and he used that as leverage in the election to go against Trump, that would make sense. But Biden knows better. Him and the Obama administration, they had a lot of interaction with the Saudi Arabia government. So they and he was very centralist better. to national security and foreign policy. So he he particularly was you know knowledgeable of our relationship. And I think like this is a country that is the largest buyer of American-made weapons, is a central power like power broker within the Middle East. And for better or worse, the US relies upon both in, in ways that you can tell. Mm-hmm. But I could tell you also as somebody working national security in ways that are, that are not very public. And I hate it all. I'm not saying this is a great world, but I just think that like this was more about politics than anything else. And it's just what makes me really uncomfortable is just how much the Saudis are owning us uh, at every level. Like they're literally owning us, but then they're um, bullying around our government. They're buying off Kushner in plain sight. And I don't see this getting any better for the United States. You know, you now have basically a bipartisan consensus at this point that we're going to kiss their ass and there's not much we could do about it. Yeah, pretty much. Biden had spoke very strong against the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, pretty much blaming him for the murder of the journalist Khashoggi, who worked for The Washington Post. And now the White House is recognizing the role that Saudi Arabia's crown prince played in extending that ceasefire in Yemen. They're basically congratulating him for that and saying that this would not have been possible without their help on that. Uh, And we have just heard that the Saudi-led OPEC cartel agreed Thursday, last Thursday, to a modest oil production increase in July and August, which was a gesture that was welcomed by the Biden administration. So it seems like all of this is all because of the oil. I mean, mean, was there there no other choices outside of Saudi Arabia that would be better than this? Yeah, I think we've covered this before. We're nominally uh, energy independent, but because we participate in global oil markets, we're really not. And so we need to you know push people like Saudi Arabia to increase uh, production for us to tamp down inflation in oil prices and other energy prices and that's just the cost of doing business and you know I think the Khashoggi or Khashoggi a situation I think very troubling and the fact that he was working at an American journalistic institution is troubling but I also think it's 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 it also reveals the sort of power of the anecdote in the United States that you could just find one example of something and people get really fired up over that whereas you could pull up any human rights report whether it's Human Rights Watch Amnesty International or even our own State Department reports on Saudi Arabia and you're going to see incredibly troubling treatment of gays the press women uh, and although there has been some improvement to um, Saudi laws and practice over the past 10 years, it is still an abysmal place for human rights. And our country doesn't have a theory of the case about what kinds of human rights abuses an ally would perpetrate before they stop being our ally. There's just not a well-articulated theory there. Yeah, and unfortunately, the optics of going and making such a st- strong stance is to say that they're a pariah state and then 
just essentially showing that our words don't mean anything when you have money is almost worse than than not than at least being more measured you can you can condemn it as you should as a leader but to say oh we're going to do something but actually we're not really it's just a campaign trail thing like if there is an even more egregious or widespread human rights abuse that comes up what why would saudi arabia believe our word that we're going to retaliate but I, but a question i have there is is it worse when you have new information when new things have come to light to then say we have to change our course of direction on here i mean biden is still claiming that he has no direct plans at the moment to visit saudi arabia but if he ends up doing so I seem to recall, I mean, there was an article in the National Review that was basically saying that it was it was a terrible idea for Biden to try to cut off relations with the Saudi Arabia in the way that it seemed like he wanted to do. So changing direction on that, um, isn't that doing exactly what a lot of people on the right wanted him to do? I think that people criticizing him on this, I think, well-intentioned or not, are correct that it's just confusing and counterproductive. The fact that you lay down a rule or an expectation, you don't follow it, you're sloppy about it, sends a message to everybody else that we don't mean what we say. And I think people, you know, rightfully are getting that message, you know, and it also has to do with strength, right? This is not about human rights. This is not about what's right and wrong. This has to do with how powerful you are and how important you are to the American economy. And clearly, Saudi Arabia is pretty important to the American economy. As long as we're talking about questionable energy use, for the next two years, New York is set to pause certain crypto mining permits as lawmakers try to limit the state's carbon footprint. The whole thing brings up a long-running criticism of the crypto world it's energy consumption. Ricky, what is the deal with this new legislation coming out of New York? So essentially crypto mining is um, maintaining the central network of the ledger of transactions in the cryptocurrency world. So a ton of computers that are decentralized, this is how it turns out to be a decentralized currency, all verify and create kind of like a network of trust around the world. And so people can kind of rig up computers to to facilitate these transactions. And it used to be more like a guy could just do it in his basement. And now it's like people are really doing it and earning considerable money if they have the infrastructure to get it set up. Um, but it's very power intensive, especially for the profit that people end up breaking in. So they end up doing it on a really, really large scale. Um, and even though we have like the backdrop of Andrew Yang and Eric Adams and in New York, there's a very pro crypto, these subculture. Right now, we just saw the state Senate pass a rule that would halt permits for new mining facilities that use carbon-based fuel, um, essentially as a way to meet our admission standards in the state. Um, and it's a moratorium, it's not a ban, and those that are already in place will be allowed to continue. And it's awaiting governor's signature. People who are in favor of it are saying that it's an opportunity for innovation to make crypto greener and cleaner. Um, but then those who are against it say that it's unnecessarily punitive against a growing industry. Yeah, I think the question is like, is it the government's right or is it correct to discriminate on the basis of the use of the electricity, not the amount of electricity, right? Because you could just mm -hmm. say, all right, I'm gonna open a huge hotel and I'm gonna use a ton of electricity they're not saying, well, this, the, the very content of what you're doing is what I'm punishing you for, right? But they're saying like, you can't use this type of electricity that you know, non-clean electricity to do crypto mining. So a lot of people are pushing back on that. I just wonder as a, as a citizen of New York who, who pays a lot of taxes to the state of New York is like, you can't both want to do things like, for example, what we talked about with class sizes and not 
tr- not create a, an environment that's friendly to business. Yeah, you can't do both. Of the, you you have to do both simultaneously, or you're going to run out of money. Now, there's some great examples of the government getting you know more innovative on this stuff. Whether it's cannabis legalization, which I think is still too little, too late. Um, the casino stuff, which we'll cover in, in future episodes. That's all good because it's new sources of revenue. But they also can't chase out industry. They've done this with the financial industry. They're going to do it with crypto. Like you. If you're going to want to spend a lot of money, you got to create a hospitable business environment. Yeah. And this is essentially just penalizing a specific industry in order to meet environmental goals more broadly. But I also think there is an interesting counter argument to this narrative that um, a lot of the anti or the the people who are saying that crypto is so terrible for the environment tend to use a per transaction cost analysis of this is how much energy is required to do one transaction and it's uh, if you look at it that way it's enormously larger than um like a a traditional transaction but i think one of the issues here is that that is looking at crypto in a linear way and essentially what the vast majority of mining is doing is maintaining this central network platform basis by which cryptocurrencies operate and we've had more and more and more transactions and it's the same thing like if you go to an atm you're not that's a drop in the bucket compared to what it's taking for the bank to maintain the entire network behind the ATM. And so as cryptocurrency gets more common, it's more prevalent, the per transaction energy costs will go down considerably. But then again, there, it, it is true that the initial energy investment is huge, but the the rhetoric that surrounds it very often politically, I do believe is flawed on that basis. And I think people are often wondering like, why New York? Like why did New York have so many and uh, you know crypto mining operations here and from what i understand ricky and you can correct me if i'm wrong it's because of these old uh, defunct power plants that are being retrofitted for this purpose so that's precisely what this moratorium would apply to mm-hmm. and then i think a lot of people who are pro this regulation say well you can do the renewables right because you can do clean crypto mining i wonder whether that that's you know they can set these up anywhere why why would you put a solar farm for example in upstate new york versus texas or nevada or something where the like the landscape is better the regulatory environment's better it's hard pressed to imagine yeah. too many clean operations setting up shop after this yeah i agree and i think that 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 trajectory is already kind of moving naturally ethereum is moving towards more sustainable options in terms of how mining works for their systems and i think that's just going to be a gradual thing i i don't really feel that this is going to make an enormous difference but you know previously in china there were incentives to use power that wasn't actually going to go anywhere that was produced and wasted essentially but then china cracked down on crypto mining and so you know that there is an element of power excess and utilizing old and defunct uh sources but yeah i think this is a complex bill but it's also just a moratorium and not a ban which i think a lot of people are operating or discussing it as though it is a ban which it's not and it does feel very targeted. It feels like the crypto industry is being singled out here. And, and our mayor here in New York City, Eric Adams, I mean, he seems to be a pretty pro-crypto guy. So mm-hmm. there is a little bit of a debate and a little bit of a back and forth here. But how much of this may be just trying to regulate the crypto industry because it is getting so powerful? We see that a lot with politicians when a certain industry just gets too powerful or more powerful than them. And they try to like, you know, throw their weight around and say, well, now we're going to we're going to throw this extra regulation on you. Well, you, there's a lot of reporting now about the growing influence of uh, crypt, pro crypto PACs, like I think the one that Sam Bankman Fried has and, you know, throwing tons of money uh, in bipartisan ways uh, across the country because they're trying to get ahead of regulation. Because right now what's happening is this was basically unregulated until this. And this is not a long bill. I think it's like three pages or something. It's not a lot. Of, it's not a lot of text. 
And so they're trying to get ahead of these regulations. And so I'm I'm interested to see what the governor does here because she's she's not a very predictable person. And are the pro crypto forces going to get to her and, and get this thing vetoed, or uh, is she? Get, is there some coal? I don't. I can't imagine the anti crypto coalition is that powerful, especially since there are real jobs at stake here. Like what? I'm really wondering where this is coming from. Yeah, and to your point, Corey, Elizabeth Warren and Janet Yellen are kind of two of the most prominent people who tout this per transaction data as a reason to regulate crypto. And I think that they do have an ideological opposition to it, just period in general. So I do I do feel like there is a genuine conversation to be had about how can crypto become more sustainable and that would actually be a competitive edge for it. But it also is kind of, it's a data point that people use as a punitive and ideological weapon, I believe, sometimes. Finally today, I want to talk about a new kind of hero. A first responder, if you will, just a very small and possibly gross one. A rescue rat, trained to go into earthquake zones and help find people trapped in the rubble. Ricky, you're an animal lover. What was your initial reaction when you found out that these rats with tiny backpacks were in fact trying to (laughs) save Jack? Jack is just a person caught under rubble, by the way. <laughs> um, well, I think we all kind of laughed at Joe, our team member who pitched the tiny rats with or rats with tiny backpacks idea. But I actually, the more that I'm thinking about it, I kind of love this. I, I'm a, you're right, I'm an animal lover. I was the the kid who was making my former farmhand dad like humane trap mice in our house growing up. But I think this is, you know, rats get a really bad rep. They're really gross here, I admit it. But they're also really useful and they're smart and they can put little tiny backpacks on. They're they're training 170 rats to go into earthquake rubble like they usually have dogs do but they're so much smaller so they can actually maneuver it and then essentially hit a button if they find a human that needs help and even potentially use their little backpacks to talk to people and to communicate like where they are are they okay what medical needs do they have and so i think as much as they're stigmatized they're actually useful and and you know you might like a rat a little more if they save you from earthquake rubble well Corey, you've been living in new york for a while now so I think one thing we can accept here is that we have lost the war against the rats here. They, this has been going on my whole life. I've seen more rats and they're more well-fed than at any point in my life. <laughs> and I, it's at the point now where people just accept it as a way of life. Like I was at a restaurant uh, in lower Manhattan this weekend and there was a humongous rat who just came up stood out and literally just plopped down on the sidewalk in front of a bunch of tables having dinner and everybody just laughed and were taking photos of it and he was not scared of anybody. (laughs) So I think like this is like a question of, all right, they're here to stay and like, Let's give them something to do. You know what yeah, I'm saying? I mean, the rats in New York here, they're bold. Yeah, um, they're huge. You know, they're huge. They're enormous. Uh, they're very enormous. And this is a way possibly to maybe mitigate the rat problem because now we can give these rats jobs. Yeah. We can give them purpose <laughs> and possibly, you know, put these little backpacks on them. But, you know, New York, as as far as I'm as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, it does not sit on a fault line. So I don't I don't think an earthquake in New York would be something you'd have to worry about. In the former city I used to live in, San Francisco, definitely something they have to to, to deal with. So why don't we? Uh, this might sound controversial. Round up the New York rats, give them the tiny backpacks, and send them to San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> I have another idea, which is like, what if we train them to clean up trash? You know, they're kind of doing that anyway. So the question is like, can we reward them? You know, because I think what's happening now is uh, we're trying to poison them. It's not really working. They're eating our food, right? 
like so what if we like you can use food as a tool of training that's probably how they train these guys right uh and so use the food as a sort of incentive to say like all right if you gather up enough trash we give you some food so you don't have to go like you know yeah i mean why don't we just have them cook our meals too well that's ratatouille a great movie yeah exactly at Um, this point i feel like we're I, I am all for people being upset when a rat is in their home, but we are outdoor dining and we are eating in their house now. Yeah. So there's no wonder that they're getting bigger and bolder in yeah. the city. I think I'm I'm all for any of these proposals. Which is interesting. Put them to work. If you've watched Planet Earth, you know, David Attenborough was once asked, is there, because he's a lover of all things, all creatures, right? He was like, is there any animal or species that you just can't stand? And he said rats. Shame on you. Yeah, David there's Adbro. that there's that inglorious bastards. If a walk if a rat were able to walk into this room, what would you, what reaction would you have? But like I said, I have nothing against rats. They're the ones that trained the Ninja Turtles. I have no problems with, <laughs> yeah. with rats, and uh, I think this is a very interesting thing. I, we we tend to use mice and rats a lot in experiments, which is a little unusual. But this seems to be a little bit more humane, and it seems like it could have a really good effect for for people and helping save lives. So yeah. I'm I'm all for rescue rats, and uh, if no one has trademarked or copyrighted that name yet, they probably need to because. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a pretty good series. Go for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. We'll, we'll talk after the show. Uh, we want to thank you all for listening and watching. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, and if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time. <laughs>